0: Well, welcome listeners to the Editor's Desk, our regular podcast with authors in First Things Magazine, and I am Rusty Reno, the editor of First Things, and I'm delighted today to have with me Aaron Wren. Aaron is the author of a regular regular ongoing commentary, which you can read at aaronwren.substack.com. That's the double A, Aaron, double N, Ren, at substack, I mean, dot, substack, uh, uh, dot com. Well, Aaron, we're here to talk about the three worlds of evangelicalism. And I'm just so delighted that you did this piece for us. It's been fantastic.
1: Well, thanks for asking for it. I, I really appreciate it.
0: Evangelicalism, you say at the outset, is divided. So how so?
1: Well, we see a lot of intra-evangelical conflict of a type that has not been there to the same degree in the past. Evangelicalism has never been a monolith. It's always (laughs) been made up of different groups of people. Uh, But I think now we're seeing a degree of intra-evangelical acrimony that really hasn't been there uh, before. I say that there's a culture war. But now the culture war is within evangelicalism rather than between evangelicalism and the world. So we see this, for example, in David French, a good example of someone who you would have said was a conservative culture war Christian, now has become, quite frankly, a critic of conservative evangelicals. His most recent newsletter made the argument that America is a more just society, now that evangelical, you know, white evangelical influence has declined. And so we're seeing these sorts of realignments and conflict very similar to what happened in the 2016 election with Donald Trump. So as society, uh, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have been going undergoing realignments, similar things have been happening within the evangelical world, uh, although perhaps for slightly different reasons.
0: You... The gravamen of the piece is that this division is arising because of a disorientation, or yeah, a disorientation that's a function of a changed social context for Christianity. And you gave a you give a marvelous history of what you would say the public engagement of evangelical Christianity in the post '60s world and you you look at you make a distinction between three different stages or three different contexts the positive world the neutral world and the negative world help help the listeners think through these three different contexts for evangelical witness in the United States
1: I come from a management consulting background so it is natural for me to think in terms of frameworks and giving people pictures to help make sense of what's going on. Christianity reached its peak in terms of church attendance in the 1950s when about half of Christians attended. Half of Americans attended church every week. Then there has been a steady erosion in the standing of Christianity in society, both in terms of church attendance, especially the declines in the mainline denominations in that regard, uh, also in terms of you know, moral codes, where society went from a largely Christian moral code to one that's not. And so we've gone through a period from the 60s to today of essentially gradual erosion in the status of Christianity in society. And I divide this into three distinct phases, uh, again, that I call the positive, the neutral, and the negative world. And these re- refer to the way secular society, particularly secular elite society, views Christianity and its belief system. So in the positive world, which I date to prior to 1994, Christianity was still viewed largely as a positive. To be known as a good church-going man made you seem like an upstanding member of society. People liked you. It increased your status. And Christian moral norms were still basically the moral norms of society. But in this eroding environment around 1994, we reached a tipping point and entered what I called the neutral world, which extended from around 1994 to 2014. In the neutral world, Christianity was no longer seen as a positive, but it wasn't really viewed as a negative either. It was really something like an affectation or a hobby someone could have in a very pluralistic, multicultural society. So I might meet you, and I'd say, well, I'm a Christian. And he'd say, great, I'm a vegan. Let's talk. It's that sort of a thing. And Christian moral norms had a certain residual force. But then in 2014, we entered a completely unprecedented phase where for the first time in the 400-year history of the United States, Christianity is now viewed negatively or at least skeptically by secular culture. Certainly elite secular culture to be known as a Christian can hurt you, Uh, especially in the elite domains of society. And Christian morality is expressly repudiated and rejected by society. And in fact, it is viewed as a threat to the new public morality, to the new social and moral order of America. And this entry into the negative world is the disorienting experience that you referred to. And failure to grapple with it by all the different evangelical tribes, has really been, in I argue, the root of many of these things that have happened today. I mean,
0: you you get uh, you have a nice account of the strategy or the the way in which evangelicals engaged in these three different worlds. Um, the positive world. I, I I'm looking at my notes here. I think the slogan here, is in my mind, is we got to take back our country. <laughs> and that's the, that's the Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, James Dobson, culture war. Really first things magazine was in many ways rooted in that tradition. We were the kinder, gentler PhD bearing versions of that particular strategy. I know the founder of first things, Richard John Newhouse, um, really did believe in the moral majority concept that we spoke for the majority of Americans right
1: I just think the very name moral majority
0: that says it so all, it's it? so <laughs> emblematic
1: of the positive world, much like nixon's silent majority. It may not have been true, but it was at least plausible to argue that Christians were a moral majority. Now, your mention of Newhouse is important in that he was Catholic. And there was a large Catholic dimension to this religious right movement, particularly around anti-abortion advocacy, although I don't talk about them really at all in my piece. But I do think there's a Catholic parallel uh, to some of this. I just don't know the Catholic world as well.
0: Well, the old joke uh, that Chuck Colson used to say is that um, we provide the votes, you provide the ideas. That was right. his, his point about the Catholic evangelical cooperation. <laughs> right. Well, we that know,
1: era was probably the maybe the high watermark of Catholics and Protestants kind of coming together. You know, I think abortion led to something of a rapprochement between Catholics and Protestants, uh, which would have been unthinkable even in the 1960s. Uh, yeah, it was ecumenism uh, yeah.
0: of uh, kind of co-belligerency. Right. If your enemy is my enemy, then you're my friend. Uh, I I don't think that that has waned. I think that's actually probably intensified that kind of sense of unity as we move through these three different worlds. But let's leave that to the side. You also talk about, okay, so you've got the culture war political, uh, but you also have a, a missionary strategy that kind of is epitomized by, I guess, Willow Creek. And that is, um, I think you call it seeker sensitive—the
1: seeker sensitive megachurch movement. Yeah, you know, I guess kind of the
0: seekers... idea, yeah, the idea there is to lower the bar of entry, and people will come in.
1: Right. So seeker sensitive is a word that has widely applied to these non-denominational um, megachurches in the suburbs. It was really pioneered by people like Bill Hybels at Willow Creek in suburban Chicago, or Rick Warren at Saddleback Church in Orange County, and. Again, it was, how do we get people to come through the doors in a time of declining church attendance, in a time of suburbanization, a time of change? And we're kind of coming into this post-60s cultural transformations. And and so Hybels, he walked door to door in suburban Chicago asking people, Do you go to church? And if the answer was yes, conversation over. If the answer is no, it's like, well, why don't you go to church? And so, you know, he made a bunch of notes and they said, if we can design something that's stylistically designed to appeal to these people, they will come. And again, the very name seeker sensitive, I think, is a positive world connotation. It assumes large he, numbers of people are seeking.
0: Yes, indeed. Yeah, I, that's very. I think today up.
1: people would question whether or not people are seeking. Okay.
0: Well, um, and then in the neutral world, I think the George w, H, George W. Bush, compassionate conservative is the political analog. And then you point out the Missionary stance is what what um, James Davidson Hunter I think called faithful presence, or yeah, you I use the, the term engagement.
1: I use the term cultural engagement because that's really the term that uh, these people themselves have used. A lot of people, even to this day, in especially this urban evangelical world, will talk about cultural engagement as the model uh, for what they are doing. I think hunter and faithful presence uh, is is a little bit kind of related to that. But the idea of cultural engagement is almost completely the opposite of the culture war strategy. Rather than fighting with a culture, we're going to uh, be more positive towards it. We're going to sit down in this new neutral world, pluralistic public square, and kind of engage with culture on its own terms. That doesn't mean They said that they were going to affirm every single thing about the culture. They were going to critique elements of the culture. They wanted to bring the gospel to the culture, but it was much friendlier. Uh, It was also much more heavily urban, much more heavily educated, much more upscale. Probably the main reason I picked 1994 as my transition date to the neutral world is because that's when Rudy Giuliani became the mayor of New York and turbocharged the urban renaissance. And this sent streams of college-educated young people into the city, many of whom were already Christian or from evangelical backgrounds, and they created a new form of social base for conservative Protestantism that had never been there Hmm. before. It had previously been very rural or suburban. Now you had this urban contingent of people who'd moved back into the cities, you know, when Tim Keller started Redeemer Presbyterian Church in 1989, I believe, it was the only evangelical congregation uh, in New York City, in Manhattan. There just weren't a lot of evangelical Christians at all in New York. Today, there are many, many, many war, some because of conversion, but I would argue the majority because they were already evangelicals when they came, when they graduated from college and got the job in the big
0: city. So now we're in this negative world. I think that um George Marsden I think he did a piece for us in either 2011 or 2012 on the concept of principled pluralism which I think is a classic new uh neutral world um project uh but I you know because I came out of academia I think I was subjected to the negative world before society as a whole was subjected to it so what this is an environment where yeah, as you point out, Christianity is um, is a liability. Christianity is a negative. Christianity is an impediment to progress, an impediment to social justice, um, the source of oppressive mores and bourgeois morality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is, as you said, it's, it is a disorienting moment. And you, you look at, you think that the sort of paradigmatic response is, Rod Dreher Benedict option, but pointing out that that's actually not been adopted by evangelicals.
1: I see Rod Dreher's Benedict option as the first stab at trying to come up with an approach for how we live in this new world. Rod has been something of a Cassandra, he's a little bit ahead of everybody else. Maybe if the Benedict option book had come out today, it might have gotten a better reception. I don't know. But certainly when it did come out, the evangelicals didn't really buy into it at all. Um, And there were some reasons that were probably semi-legitimate considering their background. For example, naming your book after the founder of Western monasticism and using the monastery as a model, that's going to have some off-putting associations with Protestants. So that probably had uh, something to do with it. But I say the negative reaction far exceeded those sensibilities. And you see this largely in the fact that they have not come up with anything to replace it. It wasn't like, okay, let's refine what he came up with, or let's create a new idea uh, of our own. It's well. We don't really like that. Rod, you know, Rod's an alarmist. It's too Catholic. It'll take us away from the Great Commission. Uh, that was one that people said we 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 can't go run and hide. We can't turn our back. M- many critiques like that. And I'd say, okay, if those are your critiques, then what's your answer? What's your better answer than his answer? And they weren't interested in coming up with a better answer. My, and so uh, they essentially decided instead to basically double down on what they were doing. Uh, already,
0: my sense when Rod's book came out was that the problem is is that Christianity is way too big and influential still in American society for a Benedict option to work. I mean, you know, you have to be, you have to be, you know, you can be the Mennonites in Kansas and people leave you alone, but when you're 20 percent of the national vote people are not actually going to leave you alone to pursue the benefit option. But be that as it may, I think your analysis is correct that uh, in this change context, people kind of double down on their existing strategies. And uh, you point out that the engagers, the cultural engagers are in many ways the ones most likely to be wrong-footed.
1: Right. They are the most exposed to risk. So if you're someone like you or 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 I, right, you know, you're in New York City. I was in New York City for five years until I moved back to Indiana in 2019. You're working in this sort of upper middle class milieu with very secular people who are on the leading edge of progressivism. And you've got a job at say Morgan Stanley, or some media company, or some high tech startup, you work for Facebook, or you know you want to be in in the major media, you want to work on Broadway, all of these things. You really have to toe the line uh, if you want to be able to uh, keep your job, to to engage with culture. You know, being winsome, uh, as they say, is no longer enough. And I use the example of Tim Keller. I mean, there's nobody more thoughtful, more winsome than Tim Keller, and he would. In the majority of the neutral world, he was really lionized, and kind of the secular culture really liked him. But then in 2017, he got you know partially canceled when he went to collect an award from Princeton Seminary. A lot of students objected. They say he's uh, misogynist. He's this because you know his theology of of gender says that only men can be in ordained office, and men are the head of the home. And so here's a guy who's done nothing to offend people gratuitously. He's done everything in his power to be nice to other people while holding firm to the beliefs that he has. And that's still not good enough. So I think that kind of shows the challenge that people are under. One, they're at much greater risk of cancellation in these environments than, say, a warehouse worker in rural Indiana might be. Uh, they obviously have a lot more to lose in terms of their income and their status in society and the whole whole model of engagement. If you can't engage your, your model doesn't work anymore.
0: But I would even say that if you were, if you're a pastor, a mega church pastor in Texas, you can't be canceled either. I mean, as long as you've attracted a congregation of people who are fired up to be against, against this, uh, these trends of wokeness, so if you if you present yourself as an anti woke pastor, you've all, you're also you also can't be canceled.
1: Well, that depends on whether you've actually done that. I think the seeker sensitive megachurches, which are really to a great extent the evangelical mainstream, that were sort of this mm. very approachable. Let's not offend people. Uh, I call them a prototype of the cultural engagement model in some respects. They a lot of them were not really hardcore. You know, from the culprit, culture war people. And their congregation is diverse. These are sort of big tent churches. And different elements of culture today are affecting them in different ways. And it's causing a lot of challenges for these churches. So some people, I use the two examples of Donald Trump and wokeness. Right. Some of these, especially suburbanites from high functioning suburbs where there's not a lot of opioid deaths, where it's still mostly intact families, where there's white-collar work. It's not Youngstown, Ohio, in other words. They look at Trump and they're like, who is this guy? He's very boorish. They don't like the fact that he's not classy, all these things that he says. And they all probably work for corporations where they get in trouble, (laughs) you know, if they say and do certain things. So they were a very negative reaction to Trump and the embrace of uh Trump by evangelicals other people are much more allergic to this hardcore uh turn towards racial justice you uh not being an evangelical probably don't realize the extent to which this sort of racial reconciliation movement which is very similar to many of these hardcore woke uh kind of secular movements on race has just consumed a lot of churches and a lot of ministries even in the most conservative denominations there are people who make a living doing nothing but this stuff and so that's turned a lot of people off and then there's also huge debates uh, over covid you know masks or not masks and so these this sort of tribal warfare has sort of emerged between these different groups of people and yes there are more fundamentalist churches or more explicitly culture war type churches where things have been okay because everybody sort of already agreed. And there are probably also some more urban progressive churches where things have gone okay because people basically agree. But there's a lot of institutions kind of in the middle where there have been, uh, you know, a lot of dissension and division. And that's one of the reasons that these pastors are all quitting. And you read these Barna surveys and, you know, close to 40% of pastors have thought about leaving the ministry in the last couple of years. Oh, wow, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely it's extremely difficult. I mean, the pressure that <coughs> is on uh, pastors, priests in America is enormous right now, uh, even without all this politics stuff, but certainly with it. So I would always encourage people, pray for your pastor because they need it right now. And just, they're hearing it. <coughs> they're hearing it from all sides. And it's a very challenging time.
0: Yeah, I was uh, visited with some evangelical pastors in, in in Ohio in summer 2020, and my takeaway was that they they told me everybody's mad about something. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what, let's 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 talk about. I mean, it seems to me that the negative world skews elite. In other words, the the higher you go up on the income ladder and education ladder, the more intense the negative world is. And that therefore highly educated evangelicals are under the most pressure. Um, Whereas the Trump side of things has reignited a tradition of evangelical populism. That actually goes all the way back to Cain Ridge and Second Great Awakening and all that good stuff. So back to your point that the old two different strategies that you think need to be rethought. um, There there does seem to be an advantage to the contramundum tradition of American, what's called the fundamentalist retreat into the wilderness after the Scopes trial and that sort of thing. Is that one option that you see possible?
1: Yes. I said, if these groups do not fundamentally grapple with the negative world, and continue on their journey into the future, what will happen? And obviously we can't predict the future, but I make a couple speculations on that point. One of them is that these culture war fundamentalist types who are by and large not college educated, et cetera, they will probably survive much as the fundamentalists survived the Scopes trial and the mainline major Protestant denominations becoming a liberal in the early 20th century. But it will sort of be essentially a geographically and demographically limited backwoods Christianity, really devoid of cultural influence in the country. Probably smaller, uh, but could probably survive. The cultural engagement types I see potentially retracing the steps of the mainline denominations, to be quite frank, that— They will remain somewhat prestigious for a while, but their theology and their adherence will slowly decline over time, much as the mainline denominations uh, did before them.
0: You're optimistic in the sense that you think evangelicalism has a long history of pragmatic adjustment, trial and error. Uh, One or two things you think that are being tried and look like they're successful? I think a sort of
1: Benedict option-like approach can work in certain communities. You're right that with Christianity being so big in America today, it's very hard to say, go be very small sectarianism. So be like the Anabaptists or be like the Jews is probably not going to work Mm -hmm. for a group that's so much larger, and more diverse. Also, the diversity of situations in which these people find themselves in the nature of this world, I think augurs for more diversity of approaches, not a one-size-fits-all model or a two-size-fits-all model, which happened in the past, it will probably also involve a lot of trial and error, experimentation, new leadership. Having said that, you do see groups uh, that have built something like a Benedict Option in the Protestant world. One of them is the Christ Church community in Moscow, Idaho, around Doug Wilson. You know, Wilson is very much in the culture war mode, a very controversial character, but a lot of what they've built is very Benedict Option-like. They have their own school. They have their own pastor's training program. They have their own uh, college. They've got their own media company. More importantly, they've built their own businesses that earn money. They've opened their own coffee shops. They own their own burger bar. They're opening their own pizza place. And they've acquired a lot of buildings on the main street of Moscow. And so you have essentially a flagship state U college town, which is what (laughs) Moscow, (laughs) Idaho is, where a good chunk of the main street is actually owned by hyper-conservative Christians. That is completely without precedent anywhere in America that I've seen. And because they own all of that space, I call this the own space model, it makes them very, very hard to dislodge because they have fewer interaction points with secular society. So that's an example of something that we're thinking about much, much more about how do we create our own institutional infrastructure, not just religious infrastructure, but more general infrastructure is going to be something that becomes a topic of discussion. We see this very much in the political conservative world as well with regards to Silicon Valley. Alt tech they call it. Mm-hmm. How do we have a political conservative movement when all of the means of communication in the country are centralized at a handful of mega platforms that hate conservatism and actively censor positions they think they don't that they don't like, especially if they think those positions might actually be effective? And so what do you exactly do about that? It's not clear, but people are looking at creating their own platforms. So there's a uh Twitter alternative called Gab that built everything soup to nuts. They've even been essentially kicked off the financial system. They can't accept Visa, and Mastercard, and yet they're still in business 5 years later. Maybe there's some lessons there making yourself, you know, more uh more resilient uh, is going to be something that's Uh, a part of it. It may also mean for many people, you know, avoiding some of these higher prestige um, locations at the individual level and say, man, is that a place that I'm going to be comfortable being? So there's a a lot to think about, and I don't pretend to have all the answers. But as I like to say, I hope I'm posing the right questions and exploring the answers to that, which are probably not going to emerge overnight. And I mentioned American Reformer, which is a nonprofit that I and some others created to start doing R&D on these very questions, Uh, americanreformer.org, should you like to visit it. And so we're going to be very much engaged on this question of how do we live now uh, in this world. And I don't think necessarily that I have to be the Mm -hmm. one that provides the answers. There's a lot of people out there uh, responding to the marketplace. And as you say, evangelicals have been nothing but adaptable. Uh, you know, you go back to the, the counterculture. Well, we had a Jesus movement. Yeah, we exactly. had, You know, <laughs> we had, you know, Christian folk music. We had street evangelism. We had a lot of things, uh, Christian intentional communities. Some of them are even still around. Uh, you know, now we get to the suburbs, we got these mega churches. So in America where religion is a marketplace, um, Protestant Christianity in particular has excelled at serving a market demand at some point. And so the question is going to be, if, you know, does that model go to a place where Christianity is viewed negatively? Well, we'll see, but I do think we have a very entrepreneurial spirit uh, within evangelicalism and that could serve us well in this environment where I don't subscribe to Rodrier's view myself as a, he's a very pessimistic person. And, uh, I think keeping your morale high is the most important thing. Christians of all people should be a people of hope. It's one of the great theological virtues. And yes, our hope is ultimately eternal, but there's reasons for hope in this world as well.
0: You're proposing an alt culture as <laughs> uh, not just an alt tech. Yeah, I would, well, you know, but- I don't
1: know if it's completely alt-culture, you know, I, I do think we have to look back at what has happened in the past. There was all this stuff. We, we can't taint ourselves with secular society. We have to be separatist, you know, have our own Christian music, our own Christian this, our own Christian that. There's limitations to that model. So what I don't want us to do is completely withdraw from the world and, and try to get into a bunker. But I do think we're going to have to think about uh, uh, the the concept of Anti fragility and resiliency. i very, I uh, think Nassim Taleb's work, uh, which First Things did highlight not that long ago, mm-hmm. uh, is very important in thinking about how do we become more anti fragile so that we can be more confident and more aggressive in many respects. How do we structure our life to be more anti fragile? That's how I would conceive of it rather than creating essentially the closed ecosystem. And some of that's probably going to involve creating. Uh, alt culture infrastructure, certainly, but maybe not all of it. Maybe not all of it.
0: Well, the paradox is that the supposed mainstream is itself fragmenting. Right. And there are many secular 20 somethings in Brooklyn that are seeking some alternatives, whether it's locally grown food or, uh, you know, uh, compassionate capitalism, (laughs) various so it could be that uh, I share with you this belief that we, are, that we need to have some confidence that we can find our way forward. And I'm really grateful for your piece, and I'm sure that our readership will find it helpful in thinking through how to be 21st century Christians. So thanks, Aaron, for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. And again, thanks for publishing that uh, article.